New, new, new black, new, new black Wall Street book club. Evan Jefferson, brother, much love. Educating, elevating, because in knowledge is the power and we'll never give it up. <laughs> Literature is for the masses. Where to put your money down the how to watch your assets. Yeah, uplifting others is a passion. My brother Evan, he will turn it into action. New Black Wall Street Book Club. You should come read with come us. Read with us. Yeah, we comprehend and discuss. Yeah. If we all just come together, there's no limit for there's us. No limit for us. <laughs> Here comes your host, New Black Wall Street. Evan, take it away. New Black Wall Street Book Club. Welcome to the New Black Wall Street Book Club, where black folk do read. If you put it in a book, we absolutely will find it. I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, CEO of ERGJ Enterprises, ERGJ Black Bazaar, and international best selling author of the book. The Black Billionaires Club. It's a study of black wealth. It's a study of the 12 richest black people in the world today and how they built their wealth. And I just believe that if you want to be wealthy, you should study wealthy people. We can find that book by going to the website www.theblackbillionairesclub.com www.theblackbillionairesclub.com You'll find that link in the description above or below. Daily Motivation for African American Success by Mr. Dennis Kimbrough. And today's title is Head Case. That's right. Today's title is Head Case. And our quote of the day comes from Mr. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who was a writer and author. And Mr. Lombard said this, The mind is the standard of the man. The mind is the standard of the man. In our passage of the day, our motivation, let's get it. Uh, here we go. It can be infuriating to hear someone say that, that a very obvious concrete issue we're struggling with is an attitude problem. When we're pounding away at some unyielding difficulty, the last thing we want to hear is, it's all in your head. Such comments make us feel that our intelligence, not to mention our sanity, is being discounted. We resent the oversimplification of what seems to us a very complex dilemma. The truth may well be that our problem is as real as the hard as real and as hard to crack as a slab of stone. Yet it may also be true that some attitude we're bringing to the problem is wearing us out more than the problem is. After all, our attitudes are the tinted glass through which we see our problem. So, of course, our attitudes always precede our actions. A creative attitude transforms many setbacks and disappointments into learning experiences. A receptive, sensitive attitude lifts the cloak of the mundane and routine so that we may see the beautiful sights and amusing events. A roll-up-the-sleeves-can-do attitude is the best problem solver there is. A roll-up-the-sleeves-can-do attitude. Everybody put in the comments, so can-do. Do you have a can-do attitude that's the best problem solver there is and here's today's affirmation here's what we're allowed to take root to our subconscious and uh and, and take root and we can grow and develop this thing by repeating it over and over and over again until it brings forth a harvest into our life 
It's a very long one, but I think it's very, very powerful. Uh, so just hear me the first time, and then we'll go through our repetitive steps here today. Let's do it. Repeat after me. Today. I love it when it starts with today. Today. I will examine the power of my attitude. Uh, today. I will examine the power of my attitude. How many guys have actually taken the time to uh, really examine the power of your attitude? And how just how you see whatever it is that you might be dealing with, just how you perceive it to be, that's really your reality. It may not be the truth. It may not be everybody else's reality. But that's your reality. The power of your attitude. If my problems are in my head, then the power of my attitude is greater than the power of my problems. If the problems are in my head, then the power of my attitude is greater than the power of my problems. Let's do this again. So all of that was really the affirmation. So let me give it to you one more time. Today, I will examine the power of my attitude. If my problems are in my head, then the power of my attitude is greater than the power of my problem. Let me guys realize that the power of your attitude is greater than the power of your problems. Let's do this one more time for the people in the back. Repeat after me. Today, I will examine the power of my attitude. If my problems are in my head, then the power of my attitude is greater than the power of my problem. Head case. Daily motivations for African-American success by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. Daily motivations for African-American success by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. Quick word from our sponsor. Don't just buy black, decorate black. ERGJ Black Bazaar is the Afrocentric marketplace, and we specialize in urban home decor. Anything from shower sets to wall tapestries to duvet cover sets, you can decorate your entire home with original black art inspired gifts. Check us out at www.ergjblackbazaar.com, www.ergjblackbazaar.com. ERGJ Black Bazaar, the Afrocentric marketplace. We make group economics easy. The New Black Wall Street Book Club presents Black Fortunes. The story of the first six African-Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires by Shamari Wills.
Let's read. Well, my beautiful people, that was our appetizer. That's to get us warmed up. <laughs> but what's really coming down the pike is we're uh, continuing along in our journey. We're now into chapter eight of, of Black Fortunes, which is the story of the first six African-Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. And chapter eight's title is Mother of Civil Rights in California. Now, I'm super excited about this because it looks like we're going to be talking about Miss Mary Ellen Pleasant. Guys don't know about her, man. Y'all better catch up to other a- uh, episodes which you can find across all our podcast platforms is New Black Wall Street Book Club. So we're into chapter eight, the mother of civil rights in California. The mother of civil rights in California, chapter eight, part one. Let's read. Mary Ellen Pleasant and JJ returned to San Francisco after John Brown was executed in December of 1859. Brown was an earnest, sincere man and as a brave and as brave a man as ever lived, but he lacked judgment and was sometimes foolhardy. She lamented. In California, she and JJ regrouped. Her funds were depleted by more than $40,000 or $976,000 in today's terms, principally from her investment in Brown's, Brown's insurrection. Pleasant had staked so much on Harper's Ferry, however, she would not entertain the thought that it had been a mistake. I never regretted the times or the money I spent on the idea, she said. Pleasant took a job as a domestic servant for a wealthy San Francisco industrialist named Selim Woodward. He lived in a mansion high up in the city hills with dozens of rooms and a view on the bay. After hearing Pleasant, he moved both her and JJ into his home. As a house manager, Pleasant supervised his staff of maids and chauffeurs, butlers, and cooks and assisted his young wife, Lisette, in cooking after and looking after the couple's children, a large extended family who lived at the house, including Salim's elderly grandmother. A pleasant threw herself into the work. It was just a few months ago that she believed she would be helping John Brown lead a slave revolt and govern a free black colony. Now she was working as the help. Pleasant's arrangement allowed her to get back on her feet and make up some of her monetary losses. Head domestics in San Francisco were paid handsomely, upward of $200 a month or $5,423 in today's term, and were provided a room and board. Pleasant was not one to let her pride get in the way of making progress. Pleasant was not one to let her pride get in the way of making progress. The bright spot in her new role was Selim's wife, Lisette, was in her 20s and young enough to be Pleasant's daughter. Lisette was blonde with a slight frame and tiny compared to the towering Pleasant. The two quickly became friends and spent the days walking the hallways, leaning on each other, and supervising the staff. Lisette sometimes affectionately referred to Pleasant as Mom. So where we're picking up in this story at, guys, that's part, part one, is uh, Mary Ellen Pleasant, as you, if you remember or if you recall, she was very wealthy. And um, she had uh, invested into the you know into the into the into the movement right and the movement was unsuccessful at the time so her investment you know she lost and now she has to recoup her losses and 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 go back into the workforce now this is very interesting to me because uh sometimes that happens in life right there may be someone that takes a chance or goes after an idea 
maybe you're trying to build a business or something like that and it, it doesn't quite work out the way that you hoped that it would and and, and, and to, in order to recover you got to go back to work for someone and you have to what swallow your pride in order to do that and it's not an easy thing to do to, to realize i got to go back into the workforce because the things that i planned didn't work out as i planned them too and now i got to go back and work with someone uh, but hopefully when you do that if you do that if you have to do that you go back with a plan so you can free yourself again so miss pleasant is now working uh back under uh you know for someone and you're making decent money i guess at that time and uh, now we're, we're getting into you know what's going what's going to happen now in this uh in the story of miss mary ellen pleasant So, Black Fortunes, uh, uh, Chapter 8, Mother of Civil Rights in California, Part 2. A little over a year after Pleasant returned to California, uh, Abraham Lincoln was elected president. And soon after the Civil War began, Pleasant was glad. My work with Brown seemed at first like a failure, but time proved that the money was well spent, she said. It paved the way for the war. Woodworth had to leave home when he was ordered to return to the Navy to command a gunboat, the USS John P. Jackson, as part of a fleet detached to the Mississippi River to sink Confederate ships and help conquer the Mississippi ports. Perhaps in gratitude for his hospitality, Pleasant decided to remain at the Woodworths during the war and look after the household. Then she continued to manage the house and help his young wife with the family. When the war ended and Celine returned home, Pleasant and JJ moved out. Afterward, Pleasant and Lisette remained close and Pleasant stopped by the house frequently to help her run the house. Just after the war ended, Pleasant made a splash on San Francisco's social scene when she threw a wedding for her daughter Lizzie, who had moved from the East. Lizzie had fallen for a businessman named R.B. Phillips. The wedding was covered by San Francisco's black newspaper, The Elevator, which called the affair Splendid Entertainment. The expensively fashioned gala was the first public display of Pleasant's wealth and the beginning of her embracing a more public profile. So now Pleasant is, uh, you know, after the war, I guess, with uh, the Civil War, uh, her and JJ move out. And now I guess her wife, her daughter moved over to the East and they had an elaborate party to uh, to celebrate her, her marriage. And now people are starting to see that Mary Ellen Pleasant is pretty wealthy. <laughs> Now people seeing that she got she got some guap. All right, these are short little chapters. Okay, let's keep going. So, at any rate, Black Forces: the uh, story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Chapter eight: the mother of civil rights in California. Part three. So during the reconstruction years in San Francisco, Pleasant entered a new phase in which she took a higher profile in both her business and activist efforts. As African-Americans re ready to fight for their rights, black San Francisco was dealt a blow in 1862. When the California courts awarded the land of the black millionaire William Liedersdorf to the estate of John Folson, a white industrialist who swindled him out of the land, Chief among the concerns of African-Americans in San Francisco after the war was the desegregation of San Francisco streetcars. The cars, which provided fast and affordable transport, were off limits to blacks. 
The drivers were instructed not to stop for African-Americans and not to let them on board. Pleasant made it her mission to desegregate the streetcars. So she made, she had a mission now. To do so, she devised a plan to catch the streetcar companies in the act of discriminating in violation of the freshly minted Civil Rights Act of 1866. Then filed suit against them. She began with the Omnibus Railroad and Cable Company, which served the southern part of San Francisco, where many African-Americans live. One afternoon in 1866, she waited on the street corner as a streetcar approached, pulled down the tracks by horses. When the car stopped, Pleasant got on but was told by the driver to get off. She stepped off the car and later that day filed a lawsuit. Before the case could reach court, the streetcar company contacted Pleasant to make a settlement with her. Pleasant dropped the suit in exchange for the omnibus agreeing to allow African-Americans to ride its car. But even after she withdrew her claim, she wasn't finished. She was going to go after San Francisco's other big rail company. Pleasant decided to try to catch the North Beach and Mission Railroad Company in the act of discrimination. The NBMRR was a much bigger company than the, that, that served the wealthy neighborhoods in the north of San Francisco. They would not give in as easily as Omnibus, so Pleasant had to lay her trap precisely. She enlisted the help of Lisette Woodwork, the matriarch of of one of the city's most respected white families. Everything went as planned. On September 27th of 1866, they met near Lisette's house, and Lisette boarded the car one stop before Pleasant. When the streetcar approached Pleasant, she flailed her arms to try to get the driver to stop. The driver looked at her but kept driving. Afterward, Pleasant hired a high-priced attorney named George W. Tyler and sued. The lawyer filed a suit in late of 1866 or early 1867, charging that the agents and servants of the defendant acted under instructions received from said defendant, requiring them to refuse to stop the cars of said defendant to allow colored people or people of African descent to get on board. He added that she had suffered greatly in her mind and furthermore was compelled to and did decide, did proceed on foot to her destination, not being at the time in a physical condition to do so, causing thereby, thereby great suffering of body. Lisette testified that she had been on the car when it when it had bypassed Pleasant. So here's the interesting thing here. What's going on, Miss uh, what's going on, Miss uh Miss Empress? Here's the interesting thing here. So so uh Miss Pleasant, Mary Ellen Pleasant, this 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 bad now this is a bad woman here. But anyway, um she is uh she is as a mission, you know, so things are going on with desegregation. Civil Rights Act is being passed, and she's taking a charge in the area. So here's what I would say. She's doing her part with where she is. So she sees an issue that's taking place in San Francisco, and she's saying, well, hey, I'm in San Francisco. Uh, we got new laws that are passed, and she is working the law. Now, here's the interesting thing, and this is something that black folk need to learn, how to work the law. The same way, see, the law, let me tell you something. Now, we understand that there could be manipulation of the law. You know what I'm saying? That those who wrote the law can manipulate the law. But I want you to understand that the letter of the law is uh, is relative for everyone to be able to manipulate. So she just said, you know what? I'm going to use the law to uh, basically to affect change, not buck the system, not go against the law, but say, here's what the law is. I have leverage. Let me file suit. First time she won. This time, uh, I don't know. She she had a she had she had a well devised plan that she could use her white friend. Okay, uh, did y'all just hear what I just said? Um, in 1867, uh, Miss Mary Ellen Pleasant 
used her white friend to testify on her behalf. So don't tell me that you can't be friends with white people if someone could do it back in 1867. Uh-oh. Wait a second. Wait one second. In 1867, one of the first millionaires had a white friend that helped her. See, so so I don't know about you, but I understand that all, all white folk ain't asses in the back. Okay? And they can come in hand. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say I've had a lot of white people step up on my behalf when black folk wouldn't. Uh-oh. See, because sometimes they get it. Sometimes they see it. Sometimes, sometimes, and all the time. But sometimes, some of them, some of them, they get it. And I would just say some of them get it more at times than the people that are being, uh, being affected the most. Yeah, white folk helped Martin Luther King. White folk helped Malcolm X. Okay, I'm gonna leave that right there. I'm gonna hopefully somebody picked that up. They do their research and they realize, right? Some things to realize there. So anyway, her white friend testified on her behalf. I don't know, it didn't say whether they won or not, but I I, I guess we're gonna find out next, all right? So black fortunes. <laughs> A quick word from our sponsor. Black Fortunes, right? The story of the first six African-Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Uh, chapter eight, the mother of civil rights in California. The mother of civil rights in California. I guess this is part one, two, three, part four. Part four. On the day her case was heard in court, Pleasant, George, Tyler, and Lissette arrived at the court thrown by reporters. Inside the courtroom, Pleasant and MBMRR's lawyers made their arguments. Finally, Pleasant's star witness, Lissette Woodworth, took the stand. Can you describe the circumstances of the MBMRR incident, George Tyler asked. Well, I was in the car when she hailed it. I saw her hail it, and the conductor took no notice of her and walked into the car, Woodworth again. Said I, said I to the conductor, stop this car. There's a woman who wants to get in. His answer was, we don't take colored people in the cars. I then said, you will have to let me out. How long have you known Miss Pleasant? 10 years, she replied. I know her well enough that I call her mama sometimes. The court decided in Pleasant's favor and declared that MBMRR had discriminated against her on the basis of her race. Now, I just want to remind you guys that this is back in 1867. So maybe uh maybe us need to maybe we need to enlist some white folk to go to court with us. <laughs> okay. All right. The courts ordered MBRR to desegregate its cars, its cars and awarded Pleasant $500 or $6,863 in today's terms in damages. It was a landmark victory. They the win was celebrated all over San Francisco by African Americans with rounds of beers and cigars. During the Civil War, the California law that banned blacks from testifying in court was revised by the 
state legislator to award Black's testimony rights. When Pleasant took the stand in her suit, it was the first prominent court case in California in which an African-American could testify to the charging of those in the state who were angry about the growing role of minorities in California. In 1867, uh, as Pleasant's case was being decided, Californians in a backlash elected a white de supremacist Democrat, Henry Huntley Height, as governor. Triple H. <laughs> wow, that's Triple H. Henry Huntley Height. The white newspapers downplayed Pleasant's victory and instead focused on the sense comment that she knew Pleasant well enough to call her Mama. The papers nicknamed Pleasant Mama Pleasant invoking a racist stereotype of the plantation mammy. Pleasant was from the North and had never lived on a plantation. Nonetheless, the name stuck. When certain newspapers tried to slacken my character, I thought to myself, they must have some money to pay their hands with. And if they get, if they can get a dollar for abusing me, it helped maintain printers' wages and kept more people at work. And I like to see people employed, she later said. Wow. Well, that's a way to look at it. Uh, let me read that again. She said, when certain newspapers tried to slacken my character, I thought to myself, they must have some money to pay their hands with. And they can get a dollar for abusing me and help maintain printer's wages and kept more people at work. And I like to see people employed. What a... Now, we were just talking about earlier in, the, in, the, in our appetizer, uh, attitude. What an attitude! Now, we know black folk nowadays be all up in the hissy all fussing, just going all crazy because somebody's trying to slander your name. And she like, well, that must be some money in slandering my name. And that money is probably going to pay somebody else's wages who look like me. Well, just go right ahead. I'm just hoping that y'all keep some more people employed. What an attitude. Everybody putting guys on attitude. Wow. If that don't make you scratch your head, I don't know what. What an attitude. She thinking about everybody else. She ain't worried about her good name. She worried about people keeping money in their pockets. What an attitude. I'm telling you, Miss Mary Ellen Pleasant's a bomb digger. I, I mean, my, what is Mary Ellen Pleasant? Uh, 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 wow. For races in San Francisco, uh, Pleasant's desegregating, desegregating their streetcars was only the latest blow. After the Civil War, Chinese immigrants had began, uh, begun migrating to California in large numbers to work in the mines and open laundries. Their presence was met with anger by many among California's most white, mostly white population. In retaliation, anti-Chinese laws were passed including a tax on the wages of foreign miners. And the San Francisco police adopted a policy of ignoring crimes if the victims were Chinese or Indian, leading to a massacre of Indians in 1870 and a mass lynching of Chinese immigrants in 1871. So black folk want the only people getting lynched or being massacred. After she won in court, Pleasant purchased a mansion in downtown San Francisco and began making renovations to turn it into a boarding house. Uh, the house was built on dark colored stone and rose three stories with dozens of rooms, a parlor, and a formal dining room. I wonder if that if that building, if her mansion is still there, that would be a great field trip. Downtown San Francisco, I, I doubt it's still there. 
But if it is, that will be a sight to see. All right, let me read that again. So she purchased a mansion in downtown San Francisco. And this is in 1870, guys, okay? <laughs> this woman knew how to get money and she knew what to do with it when she got it. So she is got when it says she bought a mansion, but listen what she did. She bought it to renovate, that's real estate, renovate it or renovate it, uh, redevelop it into a boarding house. Why? What does that mean? That means she's turning her, she's turning her house or she's turning this property into an income producing asset. In case some of y'all don't know what that means. She about, to, she about to make some money with her house. How many of guys are making money with your house? Oh, I'm sorry. Y'all just living in it. Now, how many guys are making money with your house? It's becoming an income producing asset. I don't know. Maybe we can learn something, Miss Mary Ellen Pleasant. Some of the things that she did back in 1871 that we might want to employ today because we're reading about a person who became a millionaire from slavery. The house was built on a dark colored stone and rose three stories with dozens of rooms, a parlor, and a formal dining room. The property was located within walking distance of City Hall, the banking district, and the opera house, making it a prime choice, this prime real estate, of lodging for the city's rich bachelors. She outfitted the house with imported armchairs and chases, velvet drapes, and fine art. It was the leading boarding house in San Francisco and set the best table, she bragged. Many of the best families of the city lived with me. She put up politicians, uh, bankers, industrialists at the home, serving them five-course meals she herself prepared. And look at that, she ain't even, even hired no help. Look at that, she prepared herself and charming them with elegant soirees that she threw in the ballroom of the house. Her boarding house was popular with men from the South. Southerners love niggers, she commented. In her first year of operation, she boarded six tenants and charged them a little over $300 or $5,000 in today's terms a month. She made $15,000 or $300,000 in today's terms in profit her first year. Everybody put it down so profits are better than wages. Profits are better than wages. Now, this woman here, I'm just saying, I probably, we need to have a book just written about Mary Ellen Pleasant. I don't need to, I mean, I don't want to read all the other ones, but can we get a, uh, can we get a, a, a rendition that's on, you know, we got, we got Harriet Tubman, can we get a Mary Ellen Pleasant movie? I mean, my goodness. <laughs> Oh, yeah, see, that's right. That's right. But she said, it's like a whole house. She brought, she brought all, hey, y'all, come on, come on down here. Get, get y'all some. <laughs> uh, she also opened two laundries to offer cleaning services to her boarders and added another source of income. Everybody put guys on multiple streams. So what she did say, I'm a bit, I'm building this. And then she, since she said, "Okay, what else do my uh, do my tenants or my renters or what else do they need? Because whatever else they need, they will pay for." So this is how you actually create multiple streams. You start with one, make it a success, and then you figure out what else is needed concerning uh, as it relates to what you have started. Multiple streams. She she said, "I, I guess they need laundry. They need to wash their clothes." 
right? They end up getting jiggy with it. They drinking all night, having sex all night. Now they got to get fresh. And they got to make sure they throw some clean stuff. And then she added another source of income. I wonder what that was. Her laundries are set up in the backs of stores inside African inside African American men and women. She hired dreads, soiled garments on wooden washboards, and metal tubs of frothy water. So she was employing black folk. The laundry business met a huge demand. Everybody put it on hashtag demand. It was common to see even wealthy men walking the streets of San Francisco with brown tobacco and coffee stains on their shirts. Those who did have their clothes laundered did so by having them shipped off to China or the Sandwich Island, Hawaii, where they would be laundered and returned on cargo vessels, a process that prohibitively expensive upward of $25 or $600 for a dozen shirts and painfully slow. Many chose to wear their soiled garments instead. Early laundries in California, such as Pleasant's, charged as much as $5 or $136 for a dozen shirts and made upward of $4,000 or $80,000 a year in profits. Making a laundry a surprisingly good investment. Now, there's a reason why if you go into the black neighborhoods, we talk a lot about the nail shop. Uh, we talk a lot about the gas station. Uh, but we don't really talk a whole bunch about the dry cleaners and the laundromat, which are still, up to this day, surprisingly good investments. Especially if you get around like a, like a, uh, if you're around a, um, what is it called? Public housing. And uh, they may can't afford or don't want to buy the the, the, the the washer and dryer to go into the house, right? They're going to have to go to the laundromat. A laundry, laundry is a surprisingly good investment. We get past that, we get to dry cleaning. We get into, uh, now we can start talking about mobile uh, dry cleaning or pickup services. Laundry is a surprisingly good investment. I don't think that's changed in over 100 some odd years. Mary Ellen Pleasant got rich doing laundry. And she hired folks to do laundry too. Light bulb for somebody. I don't know. Light bulb. Bling, bling, bling. Money. Now that money, that, that wheel of fortune going off for me. Bling, bling, bling opportunity now it would make sense right like you know um somebody in our in our community would open up a laundromat we don't talk about that much though that's the kind of work we might not want to do but mary ellen pleasant didn't have no problem doing it and mary ellen, mary ellen pleasant one of the first black people to be millionaires uh one of the first black people to become millionaires so what i've learned to do i learned to do what like i keep telling people study what wealthy people do, and just simply do what wealthy people do. Everybody putting guys on study, wealthy people. Now, it doesn't matter that Mary Ellen Pleasant's not here today. We got her story. And we can study her story. And we can learn what the hell was did Mary Ellen Pleasant do to get rich? Laundry was a surprisingly good investment.
This is, man, we're talking about profits of the first year. We ain't even talking about the second year, the third year, the first year. Woo! Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African-Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Chapter 8, Mother of Civil Rights in California, Part 6? I think it's Part 6. Let's get it. In 1870, uh, Pleasant took in a politician and merchant named Newton Booth as a boarder. Booth was tall with a slight build that would have made him look frail had it not been for his broad chest and shoulders. He had a very had a serious face with a thick goatee and a mustache and heavy-lidded eyes. His dark hair was receding and he kept it slicked back. He was an intellectual and seemed to always be deep in contemplation. In Pleasant's parlor, uh, he mused about the future of America, praising the charity of the rich and the innovation of its inventors while lamenting that greed was causing the fruits of his prosperity to be disturbed unequally. Pleasant was smitten with Booth. I consider him to be the greatest intellectual California ever produced, she said. While boarding with Pleasant, Booth decided to run for governor of California against the Democratic incumbent, Henry Huntley Height. Setting out from Pleasant's house, he canvassed the state, spreading the vis his visions of economic fairness and societal improvement. It is strange that in a country where there are hundreds of millions of acres of unsettled land, in an age when mechanical inventions have tenfold increased the power of production, daily bread and comfortable homes should not be easily within the reach of all, should not, he declared. His speeches resonated with a population that had largely missed the prosperity of the gold and silver rushes and watched barons build mansions in the hills while they struggled to get by. In 1871, Booth, won the election. After his victory, a Pleasant threw Booth a celebra celebration party at her house. She hired musicians and prepared a gourmet feast with champagne toast for the occasion. Pleasant and Booth made a grand entrance together, arriving in Pleasant's horse-drowned carriage. They emerged from the carriage arm in arm and entered the party together. When Pleasant greeted her guests, she held Booth by the elbow, telling them with a wide grin, this is Governor Booth, who has been elected from my house. Uh-oh. As Pleasant's prospects were soaring, J.J. fell ill. He was diagnosed with diabetes, which at the time was a terminal illness. The disease was still a mystery to doctors, and there were no treatments available other than special diets, which had varying effectiveness. Some doctors recommended fasting. Others a diet of all meat and dairy products or all oatmeal. At best, those special diets could delay death by only a few years. Pleasant streetcar case and her friendship with the new governor of California brought her fame within San Francisco's small African-American community. African-Americans began to seek her out for help at her boarding house of, on Washington Street. Her kitchen took up almost the entire back half of the house. Inside, she had three ovens that she kept stuffed with turkeys, ducks, and cakes. Dozens of workers preparing legs of ham, kneading dough for bread, and mixing cake batter buzzed around her. Visitors entered the kitchen through a back door where she took deliveries of beer and dry goods. Man, many came to ask for help. Pleasant was known among African-Americans and women in San Francisco as a woman who could get things done. She was known 
among African Americans and women in San Francisco as a woman who could get things done. Now I want you to think about that for just a second, brothers and sisters. Are you a man or a woman who is known for getting things done? You see, uh, that man or woman who is known for getting things done, that man or woman who is known for getting results, that man or woman who is known for their work and their production, not the man or woman who is known for talking about doing it, but the man or woman who, is, who actually does it. Where do you think the money really flows? You see, there are so many in our community, so many in our society, so many who can talk about it. But not many of them are known as a man or a woman who gets things done. So Pleasant was known. Everybody putting comments on known. What are, how are you known in this society? How are you known in your community? What, what are they saying about you? See, I've been, I've been, it's been a long, it's been a pretty interesting weekend for me. And I've been coming across so many people, and I was like, dang, you know what? This is what you're known for. You're known to not be a woman or man of your word. You're known to try and manipulate people to get them to do what you want them to do. You're known to try to get something for nothing. That's what you're known for. That's very sad. Now you might not accept it because most people won't accept their own bullshit. But this is what people are known for. You say one thing, you do another. You don't show up, right? These are things that people are known for. These are habitual habits that keep people broke. You're known for not reading. You're known for that. You're known for complaining all the time. You're known for that. You're known for not accepting your own greatness. You're known for that. What are you known for? See, I'm known as a man who gets shit done. Period. That's what I'm known for. That's why people come to me to get stuff done. Matter of fact, that is a habit. That is a trait of the wealthy. The wealthy don't talk much. The wealthy do much. While the poor don't do much. But they talk a whole lot. Let me say, say that again for the people in the back. The wealthy don't talk much. They do much. The poor don't do much at all, but they talk a whole lot. That's why the good book says something like this. Idle chatter leads only to poverty. That's the same book that poor people read. They still don't understand. And all thy wisdom get understanding. 
So although they know the scripture, although they probably said it millions of times, they still don't understand it because they're still doing more talking than they're doing. George Fraser said that when all is said and done, there'll be more said than done. And Mary Ellen Pleasant was known among African-Americans. She was known among women as a woman who gets things done. Now, specifically, you have to ask the women that are watching us here tonight. Are you a woman? Are you, uh, are, are you bred in the spirit of Mary Ellen Pleasant as a woman of African-American descent, as a woman within your community? Are you known to get things done? Or are you known to gossip? I'm just saying. Now, we can't be talking about, you know, uh, yeah, whatever. All this stuff that's going on now. We got empowerment and all this stuff today. And you have a woman like Mary Ellen Pleasant, our history, that we can glean on. And you ask yourself, man, how do I measure up to such a phenomenal woman, such a boss, who went through all this stuff back in 1870? How do I measure up to her? What are my standards? She had the money and connections to solve most problems and open her kitchen to those seeking aid. She had the money and the connections. She had the money and the connections. Now here's the interesting thing. She had what I would call, she had capital, which was the money. But I think more, way more valuable than the money, right, was the relationships. She had relationship capital. We saw that when the white woman came and testified on her behalf. That was called relationship capital. That came in very handy because money was not going to win her that case. But the influence of the white woman who happened to be a friend, that relationship that they had built, that relationship capital got her over the hump. And because that relationship came through, she ended up getting the money. And some of us, let me just say this, we have put money this thing, this, this tangible thing, we have elevated it above people. And that's another one of the one, that's another uh, uh trait of poor people. They value money more than people. Wealthy people value relationships more than money. Why? Because it's the people who got the money. So if I build enough good relationships, I'll always have opportunity to get the money. Because the money flows through people. This is what we don't understand. So you gotta, you, you know, you wanna have a good relationship with money, but you wanna have a better relationship with PayPal. Let me say that again. You wanna develop a good relationship with money. You wanna have a better relationship with PayPal. Money and connections. Those two helped her to solve most problems. Now think about that for a second. If you had all if you had enough money and you had enough good quality relationships, how simple and easy would your life be today? You have better relationships and you have more money. Would that not 
pretty much solve most of the problems, most of the anxiety, most of the stressful situations, most of the worry that might be going on if you have better relationships and you have more money. Now, what's the common denominator between those two things? The common denominator is you. You are the reason why you don't have better relationships. You are the reasons why you don't have more money. Let me say that again. You are the reason why you don't have better relationships. See, in your mind, you're thinking, no, I, I'm not I'm not the reason. I, I, You know what I'm saying? I'm a good person. No, 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 no. If you were a good person, you would have good relationships. You are the reason why you don't have better relationships. You are the reason why you don't have more money. And until you accept that, until you take personal responsibility for your life, take personal responsibility for your results, then you remain the same. A person who keep thinking higher than you really are. She had a money connection to solve most problems and opened her kitchen to those seeking aid. Her kitchen came to be known in San Francisco as Black City Hall. Some needed money, others housing or job. Women of all races, women of all races, women of all races came seeking help, finding a husband or getting a divorce. Once she finished preparing dinner, she would go to work to find those who came for help what they needed. Women of all races was coming to get help. She was the Oprah Winfrey. I mean, she was Oprah Winfrey and Yana Van Zant, uh, whoever else y'all got going on today. Uh, you know, no, no Wendy Williams, by the way, because ain't no woman anywhere. That's a man. But anyway, she was the modern day Oprah. And Van Zant kind of put together, I guess. Oh, people of all races. This is back in 1870. They were coming to her. All the women. You all the hey, I need help finding a husband. Can you show me how to get a man? Then to get help. Oh, I need to get out of this 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 jacked up relationship. Can you figure help me figure out how I get a divorce? <laughs> Black Fortunes. Story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Chapter 8. Mother of Civil Rights in California. Part 7. Let's get it. <laughs> in early the 1970s, Pleasant began construction of a man. Oh, I'm sorry. Construction of a mansion. It sat on a two-acre lot on a hill in a well-to-do section of the city west of the financial district at 1660 Octavia Street. The main street on the estate was designed in an Italian style with a low-pitched roof and a white stone exterior. The back of the house had views on the bay and a winding staircase that climbed three floors and led to, many, to, led to more than 30 rooms. The hub of the house was the kitchen. It now became the new Black City Hall. There she received emancipated slaves who had migrated to San Francisco, trained them as domestics, and placed them in jobs. She counseled young women and African Americans who were in legal trouble and gave them money for illegal fees. 
She also provided startup capital for African Americans who wanted to start businesses. This is what the millionaire. This is what the millionaires did. This is what the black wealthy people did back in those days. They help other people start businesses. See, the wealthy people of our community should be our banks, not the institutions to go get a loan, but the people, our elders, the people who are well-to-do, the people who are doing better, they should be. See, this is how the village works. The village doesn't have to go outside of the village to get anything that they need. But we don't operate as a village anymore. I thought it said construction of a man, Prince. I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't see that little hyphen over there. So Pleasant gave loans in exchange for collecting a monthly cash royalty, adding even more streams of revenue from other saloons and laundries and boarding houses. When the mansion was completed, Pleasant took in an acquaintance, Thomas Bell, as a boarder. He was the director of two railroad companies, one in Nevada and one in California. He was a trustee in the Union Mill and Mining Company and a director of the Bank of California. Bell was a Scotsman. He had dark hair with a thinning, with, that was thinning on the top, a long, straight nose, and a thick mustache that drooped over his lips. Bell and Pleasant began investing their money together after he moved into her home. They bought up stock in Nevada mining companies. They, their bet paid dividends when Nevada entered the silver boom after large deposits of silver were found in the state's mountains. Their profits from these investments made Bell even richer and made Pleasant a millionaire in her own right. The two entrepreneurs kept the equity details of their investment between them. However, their close relationship, cohabitation, and secrecy created speculation that they were not just partners, but lovers. To deter the rumors that that, that to deter the rumors that year, Pleasant set up Bell with the wife. Bell was 53 years old and was sharing a bachelor pad with another millionaire in San Francisco. She had several illegitimate children and had and was a rep and was a rep, reputed womanizer. Pleasant introduced him to a friend of hers, a young woman from Massachusetts named Teresa Klingen. The two were married within months of their meeting. Pleasant planned and catered the wedding. Shortly after Bell's wedding, JJ passed away from diabetes. His death was followed by Lizzie's, who died suddenly, reportedly from alcohol abuse. Inside her mansion, Pleasant found herself widowed again. After their nuptials, the Bells moved into her house as a couple. Pleasant befriended Bell's younger wife as she as she had Lisette's Woodworth. With JJ gone, it seemed the Bells were all she had now. Was all she had now. And, that, and you know what? He be, I thought it was gonna be some more. He ended, he ended the chapter right there. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, man. That yeah, that was quick. I'm like, what? So at any rate, um, so Mary Ellen Pleasant. Uh, one of the first African-Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. We're reading her story now and we're hearing how she got rich. She was, she, I mean, she got rich. She invested bad investment. She, but because she knew how to get rich, she got rich again. And now she's building mansions. She got boarding houses. She got laundries. She got saloons. She got multiple streams of income. And this is back in 1870. Now, you mean to tell me that a woman out of slavery could become a millionaire in 1870 with multiple streams of income and you only got one income? Some ain't right. So I think, as I continue to say, that if you want to be wealthy, study wealthy people. 
And we're studying a wealthy woman right now who did it back when it probably shouldn't have, couldn't have, we wouldn't think it would, be done. And it's even easier now to get rich. Everybody putting it down so easy. I want you to understand this very quickly and very easily and very simply. It is easier now in 2019, going into 2020. We got access. We got smartphones. We got all the knowledge available on us. It's easier now to get rich than it was in 1870. Would you agree? So if it's easier now, what's our excuse? If it's easier now than it was then, what's our excuse? We don't have any excuse. The only thing that's stopping you from getting out of debt, the only thing that's stopping you from getting rich, the only thing that's stopping you is you. And until you fix you, Nothing else will fix. Until you change, nothing else will change. I hope you've been inspired as we continue to read more of Black Fortunes. The story of the first six African-Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Black Wall Street Book Club, where black folk do read. If you put in a book, we absolutely will find it. And I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, and we invite you to join the Black Billionaires Club. Get connected with brothers and sisters who are serious about winning with money, serious about success, and super serious about helping you to accomplish your goals and to build your dreams. Check out the website at www.theblackbillionairesclub.com www.theblackbillionairesclub.com. You can find that link in the description above or below. Make a decision to change the rest of your life. We'd ask that you would subscribe and support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes to improve financial literacy within our community and ultimately to help us to build the School of Wealth, to build an institution that will teach the next generation about money. And your small monthly contribution can make all the difference. Well, says, well, we want to say thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the New Black Wall Street Book Club. We want you to remember this, that it takes a village and it starts with us. Let's build as we climb together. We all we got, people. And thank God that that's more than enough. Until next episode, you know what time it is, Mr. DJ. Hit the music. New, new, new black, new. It's the new black Wall Street Book Club. Wall Street. With your host, Evan Jefferson. Evan Jefferson. It's time for us to go. Yeah. Now you ain't got a little computer, but we encourage you to get out there and learn and apply all the things you learn at the new black Wall Street Book Club. Book Club. <laughs> yeah.